If you have your Bibles as well, go ahead and grab them, and we're going to jump into the book of 1 John again. Um, we're actually two weeks in a row back in the book of 1 John. We're not changing things up too much. Uh, today, we're actually all the way to chapter 4. We've been walking our way through the book of 1 John and uh, walking through a series called Authentic, Living Fully Integrated Lives. So realizing that God has called us. When you follow Jesus, he causes this amazing thing to happen. He doesn't allow you to live in compartments where you can live one way, this way, over here, a certain way, and then you can change over here. When John wrote this, he was dealing with people in their minds who thought the spirit was good, but the flesh was bad, so you could live like, in a sense, like hell in the flesh and still have this heavenly existence in the spirit. And John comes along and says, no, 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 we are fully integrated. Everything is connected, and therefore we have to understand that. So this morning we're going we're gonna to look at a passage of scripture, and, and just so you know, this is the way I work in my own mind and as a pastor. Uh, I don't always do it, but a lot of times you'll notice that we go through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons we go through books of the Bible is because of passages that we're going to look at today. The passage we're going to look at, the first six verses of, of chapter 4, 1 John, is a passage normally I just don't, in my devotional reading, think, wow, we should really talk about authentic teaching and false prophets and those kind of things. It's not something that we naturally gravitate towards unless you're in Bible college and that's really interesting to you. That's why when we go through a book, we have to deal with what's there because it's the next passage that comes in the progression of what, what God has unfolded in Scripture for us. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to talk about the not necessarily like any specific teaching, but understanding the deception that comes when somebody does something or leads a certain way that becomes something that is deceptive, that is false, that sometimes, whether we know it or not, we buy into. And here's the reality of truth and what is false. When we believe information is true, we make certain decisions. And the reality of that is that you don't know for sure if it's true until after you make the decision. So when you assume something's true, you say, okay, because this is true, I'm going to do this. Because I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and that my salvation is secure in him, I will see him someday in heaven. I assume that's true. Well, when you die, guess what? You'll get the verification of that truth. But that's true in life, that when we get information, we assume something's true, and then we make decisions based on that truth. What if the truth that you think is the truth is not the truth at all, but it's a lie? And you make a decision based on that. What happens? That's when our life goes off the rails. That's when destruction comes in our life. Another example of this. Back in 2009, June 1st, uh, Air France Flight 477 took off from Rio de Janeiro to head to Paris, France. And about four and a half hours into that flight, all 216 people on board felt the plane start to climb, which is a little bit interesting. Normally, you don't climb in the middle of, you know, when you're in the middle of a flight and the, it's on autopilot. They felt the plane start to climb. And moments after that, one of the last things that all 216 people on that plane felt was the plane falling out of the sky until it hit the ocean and they all perished. Now, isn't that a wonderful way to start a message to encourage us all today about truth? The reason I share that is because as they unfolded, if you remember this story, it took them over a year to get the wreckage of the plane out of the Atlantic Ocean, including the, the data recorder and the flight recorder and all those kind of things. And so they got all the information, and after looking at it, they, they determined there was a number of different factors that contributed to this, this accident. But one of the main ones was that they had determined that there was a sensor that was showing it would demonstrate what the airspeed of the aircraft was to the pilot. So it would tell them how fast they were going. Well, they believe somehow when this accident occurred that that sensor wasn't functioning properly. They're not sure if it was because it froze over or what it was. So what happened is the pilots thought that the plane was going a certain speed because the indicator told them that. And so they made an assumption that the plane was actually, they thought, was going too fast. 
So what they did is that they went nose up and they started to climb, which, was, which mean would slow the plane down. The problem was the sensor was faulty and the plane was actually going too slow. Now, I'm not a pilot, but my brother-in-law's a pilot and Ray Hostetler's a pilot. And I know when you want to gain airspeed, you don't go nose up, you go nose down and you start to lose altitude, so you gain speed. They did the opposite of what you're supposed to do. So when the pilot pulled up and they started to climb, they put this plane with 216 people into a stall. And then they plummeted all the way into the ocean. Why? Because they thought the plane was going too fast, when in reality, the plane was going too slow. Now, translate that to the truth of who Jesus is in our life and the truth of the scriptures and what we believe to be true. We make decisions based on what we think is true, and that's why it's important when we walk through this passage today to know we have to not live in fear, but we have to live with kind of our radar on in terms of what is true and what is false and some indicators that we get from this passage of how to do that. So if you have your Bibles, let me read, starting in verse 1, 1 John chapter 4, I'll read down to verse 6. So John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now it is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than the one or than he who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So let's just begin with characteristics of what is false, of what is deception, of what's not true, and when it comes to teaching. So look at verse 1. The first thing that John says is true characteristic of this kind of mindset or this personality or something that may appear to be true but turns out to be false is that there is an intentional separation. So what does he mean by that? Verse 1, second part of verse 1. He says, For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So if a couple weeks ago, or a number of weeks ago, we talked about in, in another chapter how John addresses that that those who were false started within us, but were really never a part of us, but they went out from us. This is what he's talking about. And that there's this sort of reality, and not always, but almost every false teaching, false doctrine, deception that comes into the church started in the church, went out of the church, and became what it is. Became this kind of outside, separated, like we really got the truth of who Jesus is, therefore you should listen to us. And how many times has that been the truth of what we experience in our lives when a cult starts or when a different teaching comes along? Somebody comes along and says, listen, they all missed it, but we got it. We got this special understanding that only God has given to us, so you really need to follow us. And so they move out of the fold and they become their own kind of group. And we've seen that happen. And so we have to be very, very careful when somebody starts something new coming out of the church. It could be a new church plant. It could be a new way of thinking. Anything that's new, we should be cautious because so many times what we do is we, we tap into our own pride and the insecurities of other by saying, we know better than they do. You know what starts that? Denominations. And this is the crazy thing. I think God uses the madness of humanity and denominations for his glory. I mean, denominations are based on what? Separation. I have a better theology than you. I have a better practice than you, so I'm going to go become this. 
I don't know what the last count is, like what, 40,000 denominations? I don't know. You lose count. Why? Because somebody thought they knew better than somebody else, and God uses our own madness. But how many cults that are deceptive that lead people down the road that leads away from eternal life and into eternal destruction have started with that same mindset? Somebody always knew better. We thrive on this. We always, that's how politics works, right? It's amazing how politicians who are of the same party, and this is not to make a statement on, our, on the current administration, but of the same party that's been in power will rail on how bad the country is. As though they're going to do better and not do the same thing that's just happened. They separate themselves to attract people, but you can't when you're a part of the same party. But we do that. We always thrive like, oh, yeah, that person, they know better than the establishment. So that's why I'm going to vote for them or I'm going to go after them. You see this in youth sports all the time. You see the, the com- competition between parents. In fact, I've told, I've told this story before about when we were in Newburgh, Oregon. There, I don't know what it is about that city. There's only 25,000 people, but they have this issue with somebody always knows better than somebody else. Maybe it's small town politics. I don't know. But we had three basketball leagues when you really only needed one. And we thought that was bad. So when Jordan was playing baseball, we realized there wasn't just one baseball league in town. There was two. Because over time, when, we, when we started playing, Jordan started playing baseball, he started playing what was called the Cal Ripken League. That was kind of the, the park and rec league. And so you started in that. And so that had gone on for years. But when we got to Newburgh, there were two leagues. There was junior baseball, and then there was Cal Ripken. And so we played Cal Ripken because, honestly, it was cheaper. And that's the choice we made for Jordan because it was less expensive. And so he starts playing that. And all the while that we're, he's playing Cal Ripken baseball, all these people who are part of JBO are saying, that's not a real league. That's not, those kids aren't very talented. There's not very good competition. You should come play in our league because our league is better. And I finally found out from the backstory was that Cal Ripken was the only league for years until some parents got, a, got the idea that we can do better. We can do better than this. And so what they did is didn't just go and do better. They decided to do better at the expense of Cal Ripken. So they tried to take out all the talented kids and say, come play in our league. And so then there was this divide. And so now every year when baseball came along and there was tryouts, the question was, you can play Cal Ripken or you can play JBO. And so one finally, after like Jordan's fourth or fifth year in baseball, we said, okay, let's move over to JBO. Okay, we, we decided to like go and join the elite. And so we did that and we realized, oh my goodness, are these people full of pride. All they did was rail on how good they were and how bad everybody else was and how now we had come to see the true light of what baseball is supposed to look like, even though they were getting creamed just like every other Cal Ripken team was. But what we were doing it better. See, we thrive on that. And in the church, we do that as well. We think, oh, there's something new and there's something great and we should go and follow that person. And then there's this rise and then there's this fall and then the destruction follows. Second thing, characteristic of false teaching is not only separation, but it's a different Jesus. John says in verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, uh, Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Obviously, there will be an Antichrist as a figure in history, but there is a spirit that comes over people in, the, in that there is this ideal or this concept that sets itself up in opposition to Jesus being like Jesus but it's the Antichrist. And so it's a different concept of Jesus. And people will come along and set up a different new understanding of who Jesus is and change that from what the scriptures already tell us. Now, I, I think for, for me in my, my life and my experience, I think that is a danger. But I think for the church in general, there's a greater danger than a different Jesus. The greater danger for the church is a marginalized Jesus. 
And the difference is between the two is that a difference Jesus is usually easier to identify. Yeah, that doesn't seem like the Jesus of the scriptures. But a marginalized Jesus is a Jesus that is no longer central in the gospel. It's a Jesus that's on the sidelines. It's a Jesus that doesn't have impact on our life. In fact, what it becomes is that Jesus gets pushed to the side when it's no longer about him, and it's about a religion, and it's about behavior, and it's about legalism, and it's about morality, and it's about all the things that are kind of the peripheral of our faith become central, and then Jesus has to take a back seat to, I'm going to be a really good person. And that's what we end up becoming. We become just like the religious leaders when we actually will begin to believe something that has very little, little to do with Jesus and more to do with religion. Here's a perfect example. Donald Miller wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz. He's written a number of other books. But every year he, <clears throat> he teaches Bible college students and they talk about what is the gospel. And so just to test his theory of what he was watching in the church, which is Jesus becoming more marginalized and religion becoming more prominent, is that he's done this a couple times, but he, he shared how one time he, for 30 minutes, gave a gospel presentation to a class of 45 Bible college students. And so through that, that presentation, he talked about heaven, he talked about hell, he talked about sin, he talked about judgment, he talked about reward, he talked about purity, he talked about morality. And at the end of his 30 minutes, he stops and he looks at the students and he said, okay, what's missing from my gospel presentation? And 45 of those students couldn't get what was missing. He never mentioned Jesus once. Never once. And 45 Bible college students couldn't pick up that the central piece of the gospel is Jesus was missing in the middle of that. See, that's evidence of what happens in our life is that Jesus no longer is central to our lives. He's just a part of our religion or what we call our faith. But our faith and our religion is based on a relationship with the God of the universe that is accessed through Jesus' death and resurrection that reconciles us back to God. That's the point. He is the point. He is the center of it. He is the one that we have to focus on. Donald Miller said this very interesting about his experience. He says, to a culture that believes they go to heaven based on whether or not they are morally pure or that they understand some theological ideas or that they are very spiritual, Jesus is completely unnecessary. That's why the religious leaders struggled with Jesus. He was completely unnecessary because in themselves, they thought they were righteous enough. They thought they could be good enough for God. The third thing, the third thing is true of authentic, or excuse me, uh, of false teaching, is that there always is a favorable following. It says, they are from the world, in verse 5, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. This is really important. We have this idea that numbers equals truth. The bigger the crowd, the greater the truth. And we think, oh, no, that's not true. Yeah, it is. In the church, when a church grows fast numerically, we have a tendency to say, wow, look at what God's doing. Now, there are many times God is legitimately at work in the explosive growth of a church, but there are times when that growth is not based on anything about who Jesus is. It's just based on a cooler concept of church or a different kind of teaching that appeals to people. Listen to what... Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verse, verse 3, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You know, I've, one of the things I've discovered as a pastor, when people make transitions to churches, they usually don't look for somebody who's preaching something that they disagree with. They're looking for a pastor who's preaching something they already agree with. Now, that's good and that's bad, but there's a danger. Here's the danger. If you agree with everything I preach about, there's a danger. 
because that means you're just believing everything that John Amstead says, and I am a human being, and I strive to do well, and I strive to be right, and I strive for the truth, but if I, if, if I say something, you know, oh, that's the gospel of truth, because John, Pastor John said it, you're in danger. You're in danger. You should disagree with some things that I say, and should challenge you, not to have a debate with me, but to challenge your faith to get you back to the scriptures and say, is that really true? I need to find that for myself. Now, I don't embed dishonesty on purpose to force you to do that, okay? So don't go looking for it. But there should be this, oh man, he's made me really think. Maybe I don't know if I really believe that. Why don't I believe that? Let me go back to the scriptures and find out for myself. You, should, you and I should be able to do that. There's a reason why there's a big crowd following false teachers. Jesus said in, in Matthew 7, verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Be careful with the crowd mentality. See, the, the danger in that is when there's this teaching that appears to be big and grand and numerically strong, and, and we grab, like, wow, this is great. There's a danger in that because we have to know what's really going on there. So I have some really good friends from Uganda. One of them, his name is Michael Badriaki, and I'm, I'm on his board. Uh, he started an organization in Uganda, so he has a U.S. board, and he has a, has a board in Uganda, and I got to meet on a Skype call um, one of his board members from Uganda. And we had a great conversation about their experience in Uganda, understanding, you know, missionaries coming years ago and the gospel spreading. And so now estimates are that like 50% of Uganda would self-identify as a Christian, which is crazy. It's exciting, except when you peel back a layer of what that means for people. So in their experience in growing up in Uganda, this is what they saw. They saw the missionaries come, and they saw the church grow. But then they saw a whole other wave of leaders through their own Ugandan people start to take root in their country. And that, that, that group of people were these pastors who equated your spirituality and your faith and your depth of, of knowledge of Jesus with how much money was in your bank account. Now you have to understand, in, the, in our country we have that, and there's terms we call it the prosperity gospel. Listen, God wants to prosper his people, but your bank account and the amount of money in it has nothing to do with your spirituality and your depth of knowledge of who Jesus is. But so many times I think, oh, that, so this is what happened. Some Ugandan leaders got this idea. If I can get resource and I can get wealth, I can tell my people that I am more spiritual than those who are poor, and they'll follow me. So that's what's happened, not only in Uganda, but in, in other African countries, is that a, a Ugandan pastor will connect with a U.S. church or churches and raise lots of money, and then when he's in Uganda, he buys a big house, he drives a nice car, and he builds a huge building and says, come follow me because I'm truly the one that knows Jesus because look at how he has blessed me. And think about that for a moment. In a culture that the majority of people live below the poverty line globally, that sells. If I just come to Jesus, then my bank account will grow. I'll get the car and the house. Of course you're going to flock to that. Why? Because in a sense, that is your salvation. The biggest need you have is to put food on your table. And if someone's po- uh, promising you, if you give your life to Jesus, then you'll have all the money that you've ever wanted. Of course that's going to sound great. The problem is when Jesus doesn't deliver. And you give your life to Jesus, and you're still living in, po- in poverty because you don't have a rich U.S. church that's sending money into your bank account and letting you drive a nice car and live in a big house. When I talked to Michael, he said, this is one of the most destructive things in the church. He said, we're having to unteach people what it means to be a Christian because they're confused, and they're hurt, and they're harmed by this. Why? Because they have these big churches, and when we were in Uganda, we'd drive by, I'm like, wow, look at how big that building is. And about half of those, I said, don't get too excited. 
you would, you would not like to see that the guy who passed that church, his lifestyle and what he does to his people. And so we have to be careful because we do it in the U.S. as well. The size of our church does, ha, really has nothing to do with how true our theology is or how well we handle the scriptures. We have to be careful of that. Because remember what it says in the scriptures throughout the book of Acts. It says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord did it. In fact, Peter, who couldn't get his foot out of his mouth when Jesus was on the planet, gets up on the day of Pentecost and preaches this amazing message, and 3,000 people get saved. That wasn't Peter. Peter wasn't good enough. It was the Lord through Peter who was doing that. We have to be careful. Then there's a, a fourth characteristic of false teaching, and that is a different view of Scripture. So John says in verse 6, We are from God. Now, when he says that, he's talking about him as an apostle and the apostles. He says, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit spirit of error. What is John saying? He said, listen. So John understood the authority that God had given him as an apostle. And the basis of our New Testament comes from the apostles' teaching. And the core of the gospels was based on what the early church had said they were committed to what? The apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? The apostles' teaching is based on the teachings of Jesus. Is what Jesus taught them. And it's throughout the Gospels. That was the core. That was their teaching. That was the apostles. So they had this authority. So John's saying, listen, they're not believing our message. They're rejecting us. And we know that we're speaking on behalf of God. And because we know that hindsight, what John was speaking and writing was scripture, we know that they had a different idea of what God was saying. These false teachers or false prophets. And so there was this competition. There was this different idea of the way Scripture should be conveyed or what Scripture was or what truth was. And I think that's an important warning for you and I today is the way that we engage the Scriptures. So because it's very easy for us to look at the Bible and say, okay, listen, it was written thousands of years ago by lots of different authors with lots of different languages and a lot of different contexts, so I can't possibly understand it, so I have to rely on everybody else to tell me what the Bible says. Now, there is some truth to that. That's why we study, and that's why we do research, and that's why we look at history and context and languages and all those things when we look at the Bible. But we've taken the next step sometimes in the church, and that is we always have to have some kind of help to help us understand the Scriptures. So, like, for example, this is an ESV study Bible, and I love it, but the bottom portion of my Bible is not the Word of God. It's somebody's notes. And sometimes when I read it, I have to catch myself and go, don't go down to the footnote. What is the Spirit of God saying by just reading the Scriptures? And if it's not that, it's it's other things that we do, which is, I, I, I need something to help me kind of, like, really make the Bible alive, so I need to read a devotional. Nothing against devotionals. But I've known people that you, you have to read a devotional that kind of highlights what God spoke to somebody and puts one or two scriptures in. You're like, okay, I read the Bible today. No, you read a devotional. There's a difference. There's a difference between the two. What the devotional is, is the lens you're looking through somebody's experience with God to help interpret your own. That's a good thing. But if that's the only way you engage the scriptures, I guarantee you, you will have a different view of scripture. Because you will only have the view of that person. Which is not bad, but they are not the end all. See, the reason that's important is because every major cult that's come out of the church does the same thing. They tell you in so many words, you can't read the Bible on your own. You're not smart enough. So you need these helps. Mormons do it. The Bible's up here, but so is all their other scriptures, like the Book of Mormon, Doctrine, Covenants, all the other things. Jehovah's Witnesses, same thing. They take the scriptures, and they change the translation, and they say, listen, you can't handle this Bible, so let me give you some material from the Watchtower so you really know the scriptures. 
There's always this lens. This is exactly what I believe John's talking about. It's, listen, they're rejecting us. They have a different view, a different lens. They're not listening. Why? Because they're not accessing directly what God has said. And sometimes we end up experiencing that. We have to be very careful that it's not the Bible plus this. Now, I know there's helps, and that's important. But sometimes you just have to let the scriptures speak on their own. You have to. Otherwise, you're always going to lean on somebody else's opinion of the scriptures. If you don't know, then do this study for yourself. But you can't. I use other people as sounding boards. I take people who I know have opposing views, and I talk to them because I want to hear how they interpret something. But I don't just say, okay, well, if they believe it, then I'm going to believe it. I have to go back to the scriptures. I have to encounter that. It's so important. If, if we don't do that, then we, end, we set ourselves up to, to have somebody's constant interpretation of scripture. When was the last time you just sat down with the Bible and just read it? without any help. One of the things I love to do, in fact, we, many of you know, we, the staff takes a sabbatical day every quarter, which is a day that they don't get to work. They have to go away by themselves with Jesus. No catching up on stuff. No doing personal errands. Just go be with Jesus. I, I was bad. I only took one, didn't take one last quarter, so I took one this. So it's, in, it's been six months. I went out this last Thursday. I go to a beach in Oxnard. It's just me and Jesus in the scriptures. That's it. And some worship music. That's pretty much all I take. So I'm walking on the beach, and I really, as I was praying, I just felt like, okay, Lord, what do you want me to have today? What do you want me to experience today? And I was drawn to the book of Acts. Like, okay, I want to, I for the first time, go back to this place of kind of knowing what was it like for them to experience. So a wonderful thing about technology is I didn't have a Bible to read as I'm walking on the beach, but I had a Bible to listen to. So I put it on on, on uh, version and I hit it, and boom, I listened to all 28 chapters of the book of Acts seamlessly. This is crazy. I have read through that Acts, studied Acts, but I'm telling you, it came alive. It was this powerful narrative that it was almost like some Hollywood screenwriter came up with that was so gripping. I'm walking on the beach, and I could not even tell you how many people were on the beach with me, because I was so dialed in. I'm like, this is the first time I've ever heard this, even though I'd heard it over and over and over again. Why? Because God's Spirit was at work in me, and I was listening intently, and I was like, wow, that happened. This progression of the church being born and the Holy Spirit coming and, and miracles happening and the church expanding and Gentiles being reached. I'm like, this is better than anything Hollywood could ever come up with. This is the scriptures. Just the scriptures and what they say to us. Yeah, I'm getting a little excited this morning, okay? <laughs> and then three things now that we shift gears. That's the false side. What's the true side? What does it look like when to embrace authentic teaching? Three things. Go back to verse 1. John says this, test everything. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, let me just give a little qualifier here, okay? So many times people will read this verse and they will think that what John is saying is become a critic. He's not saying that. See, what happens is we go, well, we have to test everything. So what we do is we study scripture not for our own personal connection with Jesus, but as ammunition to fight against other people. That's not what John's talking about. He's saying, listen, there is truth and there is deception, and you are to test the spirits behind that to know whether it's true or not for you. Not as ammunition to come with God's word and wail on other Christians to tell them how wrong they are and how right you are. I've never seen it happen where somebody, not in love, but in love it happens when there's an honest dialogue with the scriptures, but when there is a debate with the scriptures and the scriptures are used as ammunition against brothers and sisters, nobody wins. Nobody does. 
People get confused and hurt, and the church moves further apart. But if we understand, what is he saying? He's saying, test it. He's saying, do some research. Do some homework. Test to see if this is real. Especially when, that, when, when someone is saying something is true, look at the scriptures to see if it really is, and look at their lifestyle to see if it lines up. Because they can say all great things, but if they don't live that out, then they don't really believe it's true. Test it. We do this every single day of our life without knowing it. Before we make a decision, if you're smart, you think through that decision to make sure what you're basing it on is true. So we were in Hawaii a few weeks ago. We went snorkeling a lot, and, and we wanted to kind of, we had not been on Oahu a lot. We've been on Kauai a lot, so we were on Oahu. So I, we scouted out different places to, to snorkel. One of those is Hanama Bay. If you've been to Oahu, you've probably been there with all other 5,000 people that cram into that place. It's beautiful, but tons of people. So we found a place on the other side of the shore, other, other side of the island called, uh, they call it Electric Beach, but it's Kane State uh, Beach. And it's, it's this uh, power plant that's right on the shore. And the power plant shoots out warm water into the ocean. So it attracts all this sea life. It's incredible. So it's more of kind of a local hangout. And we, hang out, and we found out when we drove there, we knew we didn't belong. You could just tell. But it was really a great place to snorkel. But when we got there, um, we don't snorkel all the time. We don't go to Hawaii all the time. And, and it'd probably been, for me, it'd probably been at least about, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years since I had snorkeled. And I'm a good swimmer. Courtney and Jordan are good swimmers. Kim's a good swimmer. But you don't just jump into the ocean willy-nilly thinking, oh, I'll be fine. That's how people drowned. So we get there, and I'm realizing, okay, because I remember I read online that said this is really more for an intermediate to more expert snorkeler. I'm like, okay, well, maybe we can hang. Let's check it out. So we get there, and we walk to the shore, and I'm watching, and so I I'm immediately, so here's the power plant, and there's this one little avenue to get out to the open ocean, and there's a huge break that comes in. So you have to get beyond the break. So you have to swim over your head beyond the break, and the break was pretty strong. So I'm watching this, and then I'm looking, okay, where the serious snorkelers are is like the depth is like 20 or 30 feet, so you definitely can't stand on a rock or on a piece of coral. You have to swim the whole time. So I'm watching all this, and I'm looking at who's going in the water, you know, like, five-year-olds are not swimming out over the breaks. I'm like, okay, this is more than just a beginner. So we're watching this, and I'm thinking, okay, in my mind, it's the nightmare. You know, pastor leads family into the ocean, and they drown in Hawaii. I don't want that to be my story. So, so seriously, we kind of go back to the car, and Kim and I are having this conversation. I'm like, all right, do we think we're up for this? And I mean, I, I want to do it, but are Courtney and Jordan ready for this? And, of course, they're sitting in the car. Mom and Dad, get over it, please. Let's just go. So we're standing there in a Two, snorkel, or two scuba divers come up out of the water, and they're talking to some of us, and we're like kind of getting the read. And he goes, yeah. He goes, this is totally doable. You can do this. He goes, you can do this. He said, there's one warning. He goes, if you get out where that water comes out, you know, from the power plant, don't dive down too deep because it'll shoot you all the way out way deep in the ocean. And we're like, okay, that's a good thing to think about. We won't do that. <laughs> so, but we thought, okay, let's do it. And so we did it, and it was a blast. It was rough getting out there. I mean, it was hard. We had to, it took us a while to get out beyond the break, and once we got beyond the break, we just kind of floated and caught our breath. But then we, it was the only place in all of our snorkeling that we saw a turtle, and it made it worth everything. In fact, it was our turtle. Nobody else in the ocean saw it. We didn't tell anybody else. We just swam with a turtle for like 10 minutes, and we surrounded him, and he was like, who are these strange people following me? And it was the coolest thing. But I'll tell you what, it took us probably 30 minutes to process, are we going to do this or not? Because I wanted to make sure that this was going to be something that not only would be safe, but it would be enjoyable for our family, and it turned out doing that. If I felt it was too deep, and it was too strong, and we would drown, we wouldn't have done it. So every time that we approach the scriptures, every time that we hear a teaching, every time that we hear what we perceive to be truth, it is our responsibility to say, okay, let me pause for a moment. That sounds true, but let me make sure that it's true. 
Let me make sure that that's right. Now, sometimes it's very easy to tell that, but other times it takes some homework and it takes, takes some work on our part. Second thing, in, in verse 2, authentic teaching also acknowledges Jesus. So John says, by this... Uh, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This is very significant. Remember, John is writing to a group of people in their Gnostic thinking, which separates physical reality and the spiritual reality as two separate entities, none having to do with the other. So you can live like you want to over here, and it doesn't affect anything spiritual over here. And so their understanding was that either Jesus was divine or Jesus was human, but he was not both. There's no way, because again, they, they can't conceive something that's fully integrated, that there could be God, man, God and man together. And Jesus was that. He was fully God and fully man. And so what, that's why he's saying, listen, if you don't acknowledge Jesus in that reality, then you're based on falsehood and deception. Because the truth is, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that's one of the reasons the religious leaders had such a hard time with him. When he says to religious leaders in John, he says, listen, you know, before Abraham was, I am, which is a direct reference to Yahweh, the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm him. And they thought, oh, that's great. No, they picked up stones to kill him. They were slightly offended. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I'm fully God and I'm fully man right in front of you. And so that's so important for us to acknowledge who Jesus is because Jesus is the key to everything. He's not marginalized. He's not sidelined. He's not some additional thing that God threw in. Jesus is central to everything. In fact, listen to probably one of the greatest passages of Scripture on Jesus is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Paul says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. So you see Jesus, you see God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Whew. Just let that sink in for a minute. That's Jesus. He's central. He is the key. Jesus is the key. In fact, every major cult or major world religion has to grapple with Jesus. None of them can deny the reality of, that he existed. They can't. They just have to figure out how he can't fully be God and fully be man. He can be divine. He can be human, but he can't be both. Look at world religions. You will see they all come down to they have to acknowledge something about Jesus, but do they acknowledge the Jesus of who Jesus says he is? That's the key. That's important, and that's why I've mentioned this before. For me, I have to constantly go back to Jesus. Now, the Bible's equally inspired across the board, all 66 books, but I go back to the Gospels quite frequently because that's the record of Jesus. That's the very words of Jesus. And it happens at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, where devotionally I'll think, I gotta go back to the Gospels. I gotta go back to Jesus. So right now, I'm back into Matthew again. And I guarantee every time I've done this in my life, and I don't know how many times I read through the Gospels, I go back to Matthew and I start reading and I seriously, in my mind, thinking, all right, who put that in there? I didn't read that before. How did that show up? That wasn't in the last version of the Bible that I read. And it's like, how could I have missed something so central to who Jesus is and what he said about his kingdom? And now it's been there all this time and I never saw it, but I went back again. Why? Because something in my mind has to constantly get readjusted, reoriented back to Jesus. 
has to come back to him. Because we have lots of interpretations of who Jesus is. It's amazing when we get to heaven someday, what we think Jesus is going to look and act like. And we're going to go, whoa, that's not the Jesus I had. It's because sometimes it's the Jesus of our own creation. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible will love you, but he will also offend you. He will care for you, but he will also challenge you. He will forgive you, but he also will call you to a higher state of living. That's the Jesus of the scriptures. He loves you, but he will love you in great tension. And sometimes we just want the Jesus just loves and coddles and cares for me, or the Jesus who rules with an iron fist. We like those extremes. We don't know how to live in one that is both. That's the Jesus of the Bible. We have to constantly go back to him. Then finally, authentic teaching also, to embrace it means we have to trust God's spirit. This is like the trump card. I love this. Verse four. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So in the context, John's talking about false teachers or false prophets. And he's saying, listen, you're not overwhelmed by them. And the reason you're not overwhelmed by them and the reason you don't have to live in fear of being deceived by them is because when you said yes to Jesus, God deposited his spirit in you. The spirit of Jesus lives inside of you. You are walking around with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, who is the spirit of truth. So that means when deception comes up and falsehood comes up, there's something inside of you that goes off. There's alarms that go off, and that alarm is the Holy Spirit. And that's where you start with that, but then you move to, okay, let me find out why the, I don't feel right about this. Why this, there's something just off about this? And I go back to the scriptures and then verify what the Holy Spirit already prompted in me. It's just, that's crazy. God's Spirit lives inside of me. I have my, my radar on, but I don't live in fear. But I'm aware that there is, there is falsehood and deception. How do you and I make sure that we don't get sucked into something that will lead us astray? How do we make sure? And I said it earlier, and I say it again. It depends how closely you follow Jesus. Is Jesus central to your faith, or is he just kind of this additional figure that God throws in for my salvation so he could die on the cross and rise from the dead? Or is he central? Do I follow him? Because remember, John's definition of discipleship is if you know him, then you should walk as Jesus walked. That's what it means to know him. So if that's true, then we have to ask, how closely do I follow Jesus? Remember the game as a kid, follow the leader? Anybody remember playing that? So what is the point of the game? To follow the leader. That means wherever the leader goes, you go. Whatever the leader does, you do. That was the game. That's the basis. That's true for Jesus that we follow him. The danger is when we don't follow him, when we get distracted by something else and we get distant from him, then what happens is we lose sight of who he is and that's when we're in danger, is that we're not following closely. So another snorkeling story, and I already told this first service, so Courtney was sufficiently embarrassed, but that's okay. She'll, she'll forgive me later. But so all four of us went to Hanama Bay with 5,000 of our close friends. You know, like if you've been there before, literally they shut, they shut this area down because so many people go to snorkel there because it's beautiful. But when we got there, you know, they sit you through a little orientation video, which is, you know, basically to be careful of the coral and the, and the sea life and all these things. And so, but they really don't tell you about like the surf conditions and the currents. They do a little bit, but you don't, you know, you're not really aware of that. You're, there's lifeguards and there's other people. And that's funny, as I tell this, I've already had a couple people in our church say, I had a friend that almost died there and I almost drowned there. I'm like, oh, wow, it's good to know after the fact, right? <laughs> so we head out and, and there's, a, there's a drop-off at the end of the reef and right at the drop-off is where the break is. And so the, the, the break of the waves hits the edge of the reef. And so that means that the break sometimes hits in like six to 12 inches of water. 
And so we're swimming around kind of in the shallow area, and we're like, ah, this is good, but there's got to be more. And so the seas were a little rough that day, but we don't have anything to compare it by, so let's, go, let's get beyond the break. So we start powering through, get beyond the break, and we get out there, and boom, we're in like 30 feet of water, and there's fish. It's beautiful. It's awesome. We're having this great time. And then you start realizing, okay, um, how do we get back in? And so we're starting to think, okay, well, there's got to be a good inlet somewhere that we can get in. Well, the tide wasn't high enough, and so we could not find one. So we're like swimming back and forth at the, at the edge of the drop-off and the edge of this reef, and we can't find a way back in that's not six inches of water with pounding surf. And it's funny, then we realize, it's like you don't put two and two together, but then you realize as we're looking, there's nobody else beyond the break, and there's a couple thousand people there. We're like, hmm, this is probably not a good place to be. You know that, that last thing about testing? I didn't use that same analogy, okay? I wasn't <laughs> testing anything. I was just following fish. So we're like, how do we get back? And Kim said she saw from, we were probably, I don't know, 200 yards off, off the shore. She saw the lifeguard come out of his tower and walk down to the edge of the water and was looking at us. I didn't see that. So, so what one of the rules that we had as we were snorkeling is we would kind of self-identify one leader at a time and you follow. Wherever they swim, you swim just to stay together. Because if you've ever snorkeled or scuba, when you get under the water, it's very easy to get disoriented. When you poke, poke your head up, you're like, oh, that's where that tree is or that you know, rock is. But when you're in the water, all you see is the fish, and you can get distracted. So we're know, knowing we're going to have to get back in somehow, and it's not going to be pretty. And so finally, Kim decides to say, okay, I'll take the lead. She goes, we're just going to have to do this. So she goes, let's go. And this, if you know my wife, she's like, let's go. And like, she's serious, let's go. So she takes off, Jordan takes off right behind her, and then Courtney behind him, and I'm kind of behind Courtney. Well, we get right to the edge of where the break is, and we're like six inches of water, and we're getting pounded. So your body's not submerged, you're like on top trying to crawl across, and you're getting hammered. And so finally, Courtney stops, and she starts to panic. And Kim and Jordan are just powering through. I mean, they're getting through. So she starts screaming, stop! And it wasn't funny to her, but it was funny to me. Because as she had stopped, because I was following her, I had stopped right next to her, but she didn't see me. She had lost sight of Kim and, and Jordan. So she's panicking, stop, stop, like I'm dying. And I tapped on her, I said, Courtney, I'm right here. She was like, oh. I said, just relax. She goes, well, I, I lost sight of them, and I couldn't get like, that's okay, let's, let's just wait. And we took our, caught our breath after we got pounded for about two seconds and said, okay, we, we got our breath, and then we just headed off, and we did it again. What caused Courtney to panic is that she lost sight of who she was following. She was following Jordan, who was following Kim, and she lost sight, so she went into panic mode. See, if you and I stay close enough to Jesus, there's no panic mode. But the moment you and I disengage, and we pull back, and you get distracted, and you start to believe something that's not true about who he is, that's when panic sets in, because you realize how far you've gotten from where he is. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he's not just going to keep powering through and say, boy, I hope you're a good swimmer, and you'll catch up to me in heaven someday. No, that's why he became human, so he could walk alongside of us. He could swim alongside of us, that we could follow his lead alongside of us. And he placed his Holy Spirit in us to make sure that we knew the truth of who he is. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads just as a point of your own personal focus. And the worship team is going to come and, and join me. We'll conclude with one song. But I felt this the first service, and I feel it as well in this service, that I really feel like there's something important that a number of people may need to respond to today. <clears throat> when we talk about truth talk about deception or falsehood, there's a tendency for us to default to, okay, I need to know kind of the big theological truths of Christianity. And that's true, and those are important. But I think just as, if not maybe sometimes more important, is that we lose sight of the basics 
of our faith in Jesus. And when we do that, we get, we get off from what God had purposed for us, and we start to do and believe things that are not true of what he has said. And as we were in worship this morning, and we were singing about God's love, and we were singing a song that describes that as Jesus went through the Garden of Gethsemane, and he went to the cross, and he suffered on our behalf, that all the way through that, we were on his mind. And we sang about the depth of God's love for us. As I was worshiping, the Lord reminded me of one of the most basic and probably well-known passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. John three sixteen and 17. Verses that we can probably quote. But also reminded me that the danger of not authentically embracing the truth is that even a passage that is so powerful and so profound and yet so familiar cannot be believed. Listen, Jesus in his own words said this, for God so loved the world. That was God's motivation. And his motivation led him to send his only son, Jesus. And that whoever would believe in him, follow him, give their life to him, him being central, would not have to live in fear of separation, isolation, and perishing, but would have life that would last forever. Now, let me pause there because I I believe that some of us today know that verse, but we really don't believe it, and this is how I know. Because you really, if you were honest with yourself, you really believe that God doesn't love you. And if you were to be honest about your understanding of that verse, you might say, for God so disdained the world, or even hated the world, that he sent his son to condemn the world, to point the finger at the world, to show the world how horrible it is, to separate the world from me. But that's not the truth. Because verse 17 tells us, Jesus said in his own words that Son of Man didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Why is that so important? Because when you don't believe that God loves you and you call yourself a Christian, your approach to faith is called legalism. Because you you believe that God can't possibly truly love me and accept me unconditionally through what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection. So therefore, I have to be good enough. I have to be pure enough. I have to be moral enough. I have to be smart enough. I have to do good works enough so that somehow when I stand before God, he'll look at my life and say, okay, good enough. See, that's somebody who believes that God doesn't really love them. See, because somebody who believes God loves them is motivated to do the same, but knows that their salvation is not based on it. And I believe there's someone here today, if not more than one person, that you have embraced this lifestyle that is based on legalism, and therefore your life is exhausting. You live each day of your life convinced you're never good enough, but you strive to be good enough. And it is such a huge weight on your shoulders that you feel crushed at moments because of the guilt and the shame that you live with when the God of the universe is saying, I loved you enough to remove the weight of your sin from your life and tell you that you do not have to earn my, the salvation I give you. It is granted to you by your trust and your belief in me. 
if that's you today, and at some point in your life, you've said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe today God wants you to know for the first time in your life what it really means to follow Jesus. And that is that you live in the truth of his love. And that is his primary motivation and his disposition towards you. Maybe you're here and you've never experienced that. You've never made a commitment to say, I'm going to surrender my life and give my life to Jesus. And this is the first time for you that maybe you're starting to get a glimpse of what that looks like. That you thought that God was against humanity and now you're realizing that God was for humanity and so much so that Jesus came and became human and then was willing to actually sacrifice himself to take every moment of sin and failure and loss and pain so that you could be free to live the life he purposed you to live, a life that is eternal, a life that is truly life. And if that's you, both of those those groups of people right now both can do the same thing. You can begin to pray, which is to talk to God, to say, that's Jesus, that's who I need. I need to experience the depth of your love and your grace and your acceptance in my life today. I need to understand what that looks like so that I know the truth. Allow, if you've known Jesus, allow the Holy Spirit to once again illuminate those things. If you don't, ask God that he would deposit his spirit into your life right now so that you would live in the truth of who Jesus is as you choose to follow him. Lord Jesus, would you seal that in each one of our lives today? Draw us back into that relationship with you that we experience the truth of your love so that, Lord, not only do we know the truth, we live in the truth of your love for us that transforms us and brings us to life the way that you purpose life to be. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.